The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good evening, good evening. How's everybody doing? Got a nice full house tonight. Nice uh, blustery day, right? Windy, blustery, right? Yeah. Well, hey guys, welcome to Wednesday night. Um, we're going to uh, be getting into the book of Psalms. If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them, pull them out, flip open to the book of Psalms. Super easy to find. If you flop your Bible right open in the middle, guess what you'll find? The book of Psalms. Can't go wrong. Just a quick intro for you guys that are joining us. Um, we're doing an overview of the Old Testament. Never mind the fact that it says Exodus. That's my fault. Um, we're doing an overview of the Old Testament. And what that basically means is we're doing a flyover approach to the entirety of the Old Testament. We're taking one book a night and really just, just trying to, to, to take it on as, as high up out of the weeds as we possibly can. So big picture stuff. How do we read the Old Testament? What are the themes of the Old Testament? Um, really going in a book-by-book book fashion. So that's kind of what we've been doing. We're all the way to the book of Psalms, which is crazy. Time is flying. Um, with that said, I'm going to ask you guys before we start if you guys would actually spend... Uh, just about 30 seconds actually praying that God would speak to your heart tonight on your own, uh, and then I will uh, I'll pray and we'll get started. Can you guys do that? Let's invite the Lord's presence into this place and invite him to speak to us right now. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you're a God that speaks. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to flounder and guess about who we are and why we're put together the way we are and what we're called to do as human beings. Lord, you've given us that truth. We thank you for your son, Jesus, Lord, that came and walked and embodied who you are as a person, God, so that we can look at his life and, and see what our lives are to look like. God, we thank you for the Psalms. We thank you for this collection of poems and prayers and songs, Lord, that so eloquently reflects what it looks like to live in a relationship with you. We pray tonight as we dive into these, God, that we would not get in the weeds, but Lord, that we would see your redemptive hand working its way even through the book of the Psalms um, and that we would come out of this, Lord, feeling more in awe of you that we would come out feeling closer to you and inspired and encouraged to pursue you more, God, in authentic worship. Lord, thank you so much for who you are and all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, so when I was about 17 years old, uh, I had not yet been saved. Uh, I was living in, in active rebellion to the Lord. Uh, I was raised in a Christian home, so I knew the gospel. I knew... Uh, what God required of me, what God was asking of me, and I was not willing to give him that. Uh, I wanted to live the way I wanted to live. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And I was, I was a pretty good kid by all accounts, um, but on the inside I was uh, very wicked. And I, I avoided the Lord for most of my life as a child. Um, 
But when I was 17, God got a hold of my heart. And he did it. Okay? He reached out. He grabbed it. Um, but what's interesting to me is the way that he did it. The means by which that God got a hold of my heart. You see, I was uh, graduated from high school. Um, I signed up to do this internship. And if some of you have heard this story before, I'm sorry. That's just how it goes. Um, signed up to do this internship. And I go down south thinking this was going to be a really fun time to hang out with friends and things like that at this giant summer camp down in Sonora, California. And I get down there and about a weekend, I realize that they totally lied to me and I'm not having fun. And all I'm doing is ministry, which is really uh, mopping floors and picking up garbage and uh, all the things that no one else wanted to do because I was an intern. And that's what you do when you're an intern, I guess. So I'm a week into this thing. I'm not a Christian. I'm at a Christian camp. Uh, I really don't like who I am as a human being. I really just had a hard point in my life. Uh, frustrated about a lot of things. And as I'm mopping this floor for the third time that day, uh, I had my headphones in, and I'm listening to a song. Okay, And this song uh, is really special to me. It's a special song because that song was what God used in that moment to pierce into my heart and get my attention. And, and the song kind of goes, goes like this. I'm, I'm mopping, I'm irritated, I'm frustrated, and all of a sudden I, I hear these words in my, my ears, and the words were from God speaking to someone. Okay? This is like God's heart uh, portrayed in the song. One thing I love about this song is it's honest, it's raw, uh, it's not really like a, a Christian-y song. It's more of just kind of like a, a song about, there are no Christian songs, by the way. There's no heaven and hell for songs. They don't get to go to heaven. Or, yeah, did you guys know that? Um, there's no such thing as Christian music, okay? But it's a song about Jesus. And um, this, this song, the words go like this. It says, hey, unfaithful. This is God speaking. Hey, unfaithful. Hey, ungraceful. Hey, unloving. And as I'm mopping this floor angry and upset with everything in my life, I, I kind of, this light bulb goes on and I realize, oh, that's me. I'm unfaithful. I'm unloving. I'm ungracious. I'm all of these things. In fact, I, I, I despise myself. I don't like who I am. Everything I touch seems to break. Everything I touch seems to lead to conflict. And I can't stand living inside of my own flesh. This is me. And this song is pricking something in my heart and allowing me to be honest with myself about where I'm at in life in this moment. And then the song goes on. And it goes on to say this. It goes on to say, I will teach you to be gracious. I'll teach you to be loving. I'll teach you to love one another. This is God saying this. And it hit me all, all, all in a moment. It hit me all of a sudden. And I realized, wow, God wants to help me not be me. God wants to help me with my brokenness. God wants to transform me from my brokenness. And the gospel all in this one amazing second came and flooded into my heart. And I realized, man, what I need, what the answer to my issue is, is not me. It's God. Okay, so the gospel, the light of the gospel shed, was shed onto my heart, and my heart was awakened. But the point isn't that. The point I want to make to you is simply this, and, and that is, it was a song that God used. The song was a catalyst. The song was the vehicle that God used to drive the gospel into my heart and unrepentant heart. This song opened up my heart to be able to hear the truth in a way that I hadn't obviously been willing to hear before. And it wasn't just because it was a song. I'd heard lots of songs before. It was because it was a song and because it was a song full of truth. But it was also because it was an honest song. It was an honest song that made me be forced to deal with and, and be face to face with the fact that I didn't like who I was. An honest, raw, real, gospel-centered song led me to Jesus. And so for that reason, 
I have this special place in my heart for not Christian music, because there's no such thing, but music that glorifies God and brings the gospel through honesty. Okay? The book of Psalms is a book of that. Okay? It's not a book of little happy poems and, and, and people just sort of you know, making happy little jingles and talking about rainbows and butterflies and unicorns. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, the Psalms is a real book of life. Okay? It's a window into the honest realities that we go through as human beings. And I don't think it's by any accident that the biggest book in the Bible is the book of Psalms. The biggest book in the Bible is a compilation of songs to God. I do not think that is an accident. Music and poetry and the arts often are the thing God uses to drive a truth into our hearts. Amen? Okay, why do the Psalms matter? I just want to ask for this question before we get into the nuts and bolts of this book. I want to ask the question, why do the Psalms matter? Well, firstly, the Psalms matter because... They remind us of what it truly is to belong to God. They remind us of what it truly is to belong to God. And what it is to belong to God is this. Listen, it's to be a worshiper. What it is to belong to God is not simply to be a man of God or a woman or God of God. It's not simply to be someone on the mission of God. It's not someone to be in the church of God, although those things are part of it. But the primary objective, the primary purpose of the Christian, the primary purpose of the child of God is to be first and foremost a worshiper. That's why I have the most important job at the church. I'm serious. Because worship is the most important thing that the Christian can do. It's the most important thing. Now, we're all, as pastors, we're all supposed to be worship leaders, right? We're all leading our church to worship better. But my point is this, that worship is our first, foremost identity. Before I am a man, before I am a dad, before I am a husband, before I am anything, I am called as a Christian to be a worshiper, someone whose life exists to bring praise to God. Okay, and the Psalms remind us of this. John Calvin said, he said, I may truly call this book, in talking about the Psalms, he says, I may truly call this book an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For no one can feel a movement of the spirit which is not reflected in this mirror. All the sorrows, troubles, fears, doubts, hopes, pains, perplexities, and stormy outbreaks by which the hearts of men are tossed have been depicted here to the very life. Okay? In other words, what John Calvin here is saying is that the Psalms capture in the mirror everything that humans have felt or experienced with God. It's a picture of what it looks like. It's, it's, it's a resemblance of what it looks like to be in relationship with God. Okay? That's what John Calvin is saying. In other words, the Psalms are a snapshot of all that it is to be a child of God. Okay? All that it is to be a child of God. They remind us of who we truly are, and that is to be a worshiper. The Psalms matter because also, the Psalms matter because they give us a theology of worship. The Psalms have always been and always will be a place that we go to to find the theology of worship. And what I mean by theology of worship is the study of what worship actually is because of what God has said it is. Okay? Theology as in studying God to find out what worship actually is. One commentator said this. He said, 
put it up there. Maybe, maybe not. There we go. He said, to be sure, the book of Psalms may well have been the hymn book or prayer book of the second temple or the first temple. But in addition, it became eventually something like an instruction manual for the theological study of the divine order of salvation. Or as Martin Luther put it, the Psalms are a little Bible, a prime source for learning about God, God's will for the world, and life under God's claim. I like that. Martin Luther referred to the book of Psalms as a little Bible. In other words, you find in it all of the theology that you need to know about what it is to be a human, what it is to be a Christian, what it is to be called by God. It's a little Bible. The third reason that the Psalms matter is because they put flesh on the dry bones of the biblical narrative. And what I mean by that is, is we've been spending a lot of time in this looking at the stories of Israel, okay? The Exodus, uh, we're looking at the times of the judges, looking at the, the monarchy under David and Solomon, looking at the split kingdom under all of the different kings, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, looking at uh, the exile in Babylon and all of these narrative things that happen in the Bible. But we don't often get a moment just to glance at what was going on in the heart of these people, what was going on in their feelings and their emotions, because a lot of times we're just getting at the story, right, in the story, in the story. We've been in the story of Israel for a while now. Psalms are a breath of fresh air in the narrative where we stop and say, what were they experiencing in their heart in these stories? What were they experiencing in their heart in these stories? It's the human element, if you will, to the story. I read a book recently about communicating, and it was just saying that every good journalist knows that you cannot give a story unless that story has some sort of a human element. In other words, some sort of a way for you as a human being to relate with that story. Okay, Psalms is the human element in a sense that it allows you to see into the soul, the heart of these saints that lived so long before us. We know their story. We know what they did. We know what they struggled with. We know their failures from the Old Testament. But the Psalms gives us a glimpse into what they were experiencing in their souls. How cool is that? How cool is that? So let's talk about what the Psalms are. Okay, let's get a little bit more into the nuts and bolts um, of, of what the Psalms actually uh, are. Okay, let's, let's kind of start here. The, the Psalms are a multifaceted collection of expressions towards God. I'm going to say that again because I constructed that sentence carefully, okay? The Psalms are a multifaceted collection of expressions towards God. Multifaceted, in other words, it says a lot of different things. There's a lot of different kinds of Psalms. An, an expression as in it's, it's, it's worship to God, okay? It's a multifaceted collection of expressions towards God. What does the word psalm mean? It's a good place to start. What does the word psalm mean? The word psalm in Hebrew is a word that I probably won't pronounce right, but it sounds something like techlehim. They, they like to do that stuff. Um, techlehim. Uh, the word psalm in Greek is psalmos. And from both of those, we basically get this meaning, and that is three words, prayers, poems, and praises. Okay, the word psalm, in, this, in essence, means prayers, poems, and praises. And I actually think that's a fantastic way to sort of diagram the book because, honestly, that's what we find in the book. We don't just find songs. We also find prayers. And we don't just find songs and prayers. We also find praises to God. 
We find prayers where God's people are crying out for God to, to work, to speak, to, to, to act. We find praises where they're proclaiming God's glory and, and God's greatness. And we find, uh, we find poems where they're just simply venting and pouring out how they're feeling in a moment. That's really what the gist of the Psalms are. Now, one thing that's interesting, the Psalms were used and written for intended purposes. Okay? And what I mean by that is it's not like someone was just... <clears throat> writing out something on a scrap of paper, and then somehow it ended up into a book. These psalms were written intentionally, and many of them were written for a specific purpose. Okay? In other words, this was the hymn book, if you will, of the Jewish people. They used these psalms for all kinds of different events. So some of the different functions of the psalms, uh, if you want to jot these down, uh, are, are, are as follows. First, the psalms of ascent. The Psalms of Ascent. This is Psalms 120 through 134. These are some of the coolest Psalms. And what the Psalms of Ascent functioned as, essentially, was they functioned as the Psalms that the Jews would sing as they were ascending up the hill to the city of God, Jerusalem, Zion. Okay? Uh, if, as you guys know, we've talked about this before. Uh, the, the God's people, Israelites, they would um, sometimes once a year, sometimes more, travel to Jerusalem in order to celebrate feasts, such as the Passover feast and different things. So as they would be going into Jerusalem, they would be singing together corporately these psalms of ascent. How cool would that be? When we went to Israel a couple years ago, uh, we were coming through the tunnel on our way up to Jerusalem. It was this really exciting moment because we'd spent the last week everywhere else in Israel except Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is like where you want to go, okay? It's where all the history is. It's one of the coolest places. And as we're going through this tunnel and we're about to pop out um, of the tunnel and see Jerusalem for the first time, we're all singing these psalms of ascent, and it was this really cool moment um, in time that I just will never forget. We pop out of the tunnel singing these psalms, and there it is. There's Jerusalem, and you can see the Temple Mount and all of it. It was just the coolest thing ever. And you can imagine that these psalms would have held special value in the hearts of these, uh, the, the, the people of God as they would have sung them. Uh, another function of the psalms were the royal psalms. Okay, the royal psalms. Uh, royal psalms were performed in the presence of the kings uh, at inaugurations. Okay, so again, these have functions. These have things that they would do, uh, be used for for specific reasons. Uh, we have the psalms of the pilgrimage. Okay, these would have been sung on the journey to Jerusalem. So the songs of ascent would have been going up the hill. Songs of the pilgrimage would have been on the journey, the travel, okay, to Jerusalem. We have the psalms of liturgy. These would have been used specifically for festivals in ancient Israel. Now, if you remember from the book of Leviticus, there's all kinds of festivals and feasts that the Jews were to celebrate, in addition to some that were added later, like we learned about Purim, right? Purim, uh, we learned about an Easter, so or an Esther, not Easter. Um, so psalms of liturgy would have been used to sing at these celebrations, much like we have Christmas carols or some kind of traditional songs that we sing when we come together that would have been very special for them in that sense. Uh, we have the temple entry psalms, sung while entering the temple, go figure. Um, and then historical psalms. Now, the historical psalms were sung basically as a way to remember and recite and teach the, the children even what the history of Israel was. So those are just some of the basic functions. Again, these psalms were not random and haphazard. Okay, they were used, and they were created for a reason. Authors of the psalms. Now, I want to talk about this really quickly. Someone basically at some point in time, and we don't know exactly when, but someone at some point collected all of these and put them into a book. They weren't written all by one person. They were written by multiple people. Okay, so probably sometime about 
about the time of Ezra, maybe after the second temple was built, somebody came along and said, hey, we got to get these into a book. We got to get these into a collection because they probably were kind of scattered here and there. So someone came along and did that. But in doing so, we have to remember that when you read the Psalms, there are different authors, Okay, different authors. Let's talk about some of who those authors were. The first author and the primary author of the Psalms is King David. Okay, David wrote over half of the Psalms, 77, I believe it is, 70-something Psalms David wrote. So odds are, okay, that's half. So odds are, if you're reading one, it's probably David uh, that wrote it. It was kind of David's thing. He was like this, he loved worship. He loved writing worship songs and poems and prayers to, to God. So David wrote a lot of them. Uh, the sons of Korah and the sons of Asaph. Okay, if you guys look at your Bible, you'll see at the heading of each psalm, not all of them, but a lot of them, it'll actually say who wrote it. Okay, and, and, and a lot of them will say sons of Korah or sons of Asaph. These were families that were essentially called to, to uh, write and, and, and uh, lead these, these psalms at different times. If you guys remember, David actually ordained the sons of Asaph to lead God's people in worship. Uh, in the book of Ezra, they were recommissioned when the temple was first constructed. So the sons of Asaph came in and led this worship procession in that time. Okay, they, These guys wrote a lot of the psalms. Some of the lesser known is Haman and his brother Ethan, um, or maybe Ethan. Maybe that would rhyme more. Haman, Haman, Ethan, whatever. I don't know. These guys wrote a couple of them. Uh, Solomon, did you guys know? Wrote a psalm, actually. Solomon uh, wrote a couple of them. Psalm 72 and 127. Uh, big shocker. They read a lot like wisdom literature, kind of like the Proverbs. Uh, Moses wrote a psalm. Did anybody know Moses wrote a psalm in here before? Because I didn't know that. I just found that out. Um, Moses wrote Psalm 90, which is really interesting. And that kind of shows you, by the way, just how broad the timeline of these were. I mean, they were written all throughout the, the timeline of the Old Testament. The remaining 50 psalms are what's called orphan psalms because <laughs> uh, we don't know who they belong to. Okay, Odds are a lot of them belong to David and probably a lot of them belong to the people that we already know of. But So there's about 50 psalms that we don't know who wrote them, but... We do know who wrote most of them. Now, let's talk really quickly. Again, this is nuts and bolts of Psalms. Let's talk really quickly about the different types. Okay, as you guys get into the Psalms, and I'm sure you've all read Psalms before. Hopefully, you'll go home and read them after this. As you read them, you need to understand there's different types, different categories, okay, of Psalms. I just want to go through briefly with you guys and talk about kind of what some of those different types are. The first one is Psalms of Dependency praise and thanksgiving. I kind of clumped all those together just for simplicity's sake. Here's an example of those kinds of psalms. Psalm 121 says, and you'll notice at the top, song of ascent, right? So they would have sung that on the way up to the temple. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? Come, where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So you hear that dependency. These psalms are, are from the very hearts of these, these men, these women that are crying out for God in dependency. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You guys ever heard this before? Okay. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. 
for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You're, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint head with, my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isn't that amazing? Uh, Psalms of triumph and God's victory. This is another category you're going to come across a lot in the book of Psalms. Okay? For example, uh, of triumph and God's victory would be Psalm 62. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Okay, another example will be Psalms of wisdom. Okay, with an emphasis on the law. No, there's actually a lot of Psalms that read like the Proverbs. Okay, they're very wisdom saturated. They're like, if you do this, this will happen. If you don't do that, this won't happen. Okay, perfect example. One of my favorite Psalms in the whole Bible is Psalm 1. Okay, and it reads like wisdom literature. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So there's a lot of wisdom in there. In other words, if, if you abide by the law, if you love God's law, you will be like a tree planted by still waters. A lot of um, scholars believe that Psalm chapter 1 actually is supposed to be sort of the header or the summation, if you will, of the entirety of the book of Psalms. So this is sort of like the promise. Okay, so if you heed all of the things in this book, you will be like a tree by still waters. A lot of people believe that. Another example, Psalms of confession and repentance. You're going to find a lot of these. Perfect example, David, okay, sleeps with Bathsheba. Big mistake, goes further, puts her husband to death because he can't cover it up. And David, who is a man after God's own heart, is broken over this. The prophet Nathan comes to him, calls him out, exposes his sin, and and David is broken. And again, what we get here in Psalm 51 is we get this glimpse into the heart of a broken man. We get this glimpse into a heart of a repentant man who knows he sinned against God. And it reads like this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. That wasn't some nebulous transgression. David knew what he was talking about. Blot out the fact that I slept with another man's wife and put him to death to cover it up. Okay, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. In other words, I can't stop thinking about it. It's consuming me with guilt. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And then down to verse 14, deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. He doesn't say blood guiltiness just randomly. He says it because he knows what he did. And Psalm 51 is a window into that. It's a window into the emotion and the feeling of a story that we can read in the Old Testament. Another type of psalms are psalms of the coming Messiah, 
and the saving hand of God. Okay, these prophetic psalms, psalms that actually talk about the Messiah that will come. Psalm 110, we'll just look at that one. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Does that sound familiar? Okay, Jesus actually quotes that. And when he's talking about um, his own messianic identity, he points back to this psalm. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Listen, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That is a reference to the messianic king that will come as this sort of high priest. Okay, uh, He didn't just come as a high priest. He came as the king. He came as the prophet. He came as the priest. But the Psalms testified of our Messiah, Jesus, that he would come. How cool is that? Psalms against the enemy. The precatory Psalms. I learned a new word this week. The precatory Psalms. Can everybody say that? Precatory Psalms. I just kind of fun to say. Okay. The Psalms. Against, now, these are the ones where you're like sitting there with your mug and your blankie, and you're like, oh, the Psalms. And then you get to this one where it's like, dash my enemies and break their arms and pluck out their eyeballs. And you're like, wow, like, what do I do with that, Lord? What do I write? You know? Uh, so we, we got to talk about these because they're going to come up and it's totally going to ruin your coffee time in the morning. Um, Here's an example, Psalm 10, uh, break, um, David, by the way, loved to write these psalms, uh, break the arm of the wicked. <laughs> You're just like, Lord, what do you have for me today? Uh, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer, call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever, the nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted, you will strengthen their heart, so on and so forth. But this is actually a fairly mild one. Okay, there's some pretty intense precatory psalms, psalms of judgment against enemies. Now, what do we do with these? Once again, okay, remember, the psalms are a window into a real life moment. These people, they're being honest. Okay, and this is an important piece of worship, and we'll talk about this. You've got to be honest in worship. Allow God to, 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 to hear what you're feeling. Now, whether he was righteous in praying that the arm of the wicked evildoer would be broken, I don't know. Let God sort that out. But in reality, we have to remember these are, these are real people saying what they're feeling in real time, in a real moment. Now, one way that I like to read these psalms is I like to think of it like, okay, well, what is my enemy? My enemy is my flesh, my enemy uh, is, is, is Satan, the one who would see me destroyed, the one who would lie into my ear and try to, to tell me that, that God is not enough, just like he did Adam and Eve. So I say, God, strike down that enemy, right? Lord, put to death my old man. Put to death my flesh. I don't, I don't want anything to do with that. I think that's a helpful way that you can read those psalms. Lastly, psalms of lament and sorrow, okay? These are the kind of the, the, the downcast uh, type of psalms that you're going to come across. There's corporate ones and there's personal ones. So some of them are just one person. Some of them were a corporate lament. Um, but they go kind of like this, Psalm 44. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. So it's sort of this lament, kind of like the, the book of Lamentations, which we'll get to soon. Okay, it's this like sorrow, this weeping over, over God and what he's doing. And usually in regards to the punishment that God is dealing out to his people. Okay, now the cool thing about these psalms and about the precatory psalms is they always come around at the end. 
Okay, they always come in. They'll start out really depressing, like, oh, Lord, you've cast off forever. You're never coming back. Lord, break the arm of my enemies. But by the end, it's almost like the psalmist's heart is turned to God's heart, and they always end in praise, and they always seem to end on a, on a higher note, which I, I love that about the psalm. So that's kind of a nutshell, um, just the nuts and bolts of the psalms. Everybody got that? Did I lose anyone? Is anyone sleeping? Everyone's awake. Okay, praise the Lord. Now, I want to talk about Three reasons, three reasons why you, church, Christians, saints, three reasons why you should saturate your life with these psalms. Three reasons why these psalms need to be an integral part of your life. Okay, I chose that word saturate uh, on purpose. They need to literally saturate your life. These psalms need to be a part of who you are for three reasons. If you want to write them down, the first one is this. The first one is that the psalms remind us how to truly know God. The psalms remind us of how to truly know God. Nahum Sarna said this. He said, in the psalms, the human soul extends itself beyond its confining, sheltering, and permanent house of clay. It strives for contact with the ultimate source of life. It gropes for an experience of divine presence. The biblical psalms, listen to this part, the biblical psalms are essentially a record of the human quest for God. What the Psalms reminded me of this week as I was is praying through them and thinking through them and reading through them is, is this very important point, and this is why we have to saturate our lives with the Psalms, is they remind us of how we truly know God, okay? How we truly know God. Now, what's interesting about the Psalms is that all of these scholars for years have tried to find different ways to organize this book, okay? It's 150 chapters. It's really long. Uh, it's a really big book. It's cumbersome. It's not a narrative. So all of these scholars have come along and said, you know, I, I'm going to find the roadmap to the book of Psalms. There's a roadmap. And I, I'll tell you guys what, in my studies this week, I found like 20 roadmaps to the book of Psalms. You could split them this way. You could split them into the five books. Oh, they're here to represent, they're, they're a, a picture of the, the Torah or, you know, there's all kinds of different ways. But every time I watch one of them, I just kind of went, eh. I don't think that's the point. I, I don't think that they were meant to be read that way. I don't think they were meant to be crammed into some man-made metric or man-made grid. I just don't think that they were. And what that reminded me of and what the Psalms themselves reminded me of this week is that there is a primary way to know God. And that primary way is not simply to know about God. That primary way is to know God, personally. My point is this. God is not meant to be only understood. God is meant to be experienced. The Psalms remind us of the simple truth that God is known not simply by, by understanding who he is and what he said, but that he's known by experiencing him. I want to coin a new phrase, and maybe I'll get in trouble uh, you know, with scholars for using this or whatever, but I want to coin a new phrase called artistic theology, okay? Uh, systematic theology, by way of contrast, is when we understand um, who God is and what he says by systematically understanding the Bible, and that's a very important way. That's how we understand, in a lot of ways, understand who God is, what he said through the word, is through systematic theology. The problem is, though, is that God cannot only be understood through academia, 
God can not only be understood through a systematic theology. God primarily is understood through experiencing him, through actually being with him. Okay, I I had this crisis moment this week where uh, I've been in this academic, kind of this academic season where I've just been studying a lot for these teachings and I've been taking a college class on the New Testament and I've been doing all of these different things just to study and to learn. And, And I hit a point a few days ago where I went out to good being early with my Bible and I just was needing to be with the Lord and I sat down and I opened my Bible and I immediately started outlining and studying, and I go, this is not life-giving to me right now. Now, studying the Bible is important. That's why we're here. But I realized in that moment is I'm like, God, I have to just, I need to just be with you right now. I don't need to learn about you right now. I don't need to, I don't need to, to study the scriptures. Right now. I need to be in your presence. And I literally, I literally realized that in that moment that, that I was starving even though I had eaten all of this Bible, all of this this approaching who God is and understanding theologically who God is, I'm starving in this moment because I'm starving for the presence of God, starving for relationship, time with God. So I devoted that morning. I ended up driving out to Applegate, and I sat in morning worship, and I just was with God. Just, Lord, I'm just going to be in your presence. I just want to acknowledge that you're here. I want to sing praises to your name. I want to pray to you. And that was what I needed. That was my soul was thirsty for, was longing for. And what the Psalms remind us of is this simple fact that we must understand God's word and we must uh, be good stewards of it and we must divide it rightly, as the New Testament says. But at the same time, guys, you only can truly know God through experiencing him. You can only truly know God through experiencing him. God is not merely a math equation to be scrutinized. God is a cinematic experience that we need to sit back and actually take in. Okay, God did not just design mathematics. He also designed art. Okay, now is God the God of mathematics? Absolutely. In fact, God created it. Okay, and God is a God of truth and absolute order, and there are answers to every question. At the same time, God created this thing called art. He created this thing that we cannot seem to scientifically figure out. Why do those seven notes go together and the other ones don't? I don't know. Why is it that that song, for some reason, triggers an emotional reaction? What, what is music? How do, you, how do you explain music to me? Okay, I'm a music guy. I do music for a living. I know music. How do you explain music? You cannot explain it mathematically. It is something deeper than that. It's something more than that. It's something that God created because it reflects his nature. And my point is simply this, is that God cannot only be understood through diagrams and graphs. God is to be understood through the raw and honest relationship with him as well. It's a crucial piece, and that's what I love about the Psalms. They don't fit into a diagram. They don't. They're raw and honest relationship with God. The disciples, after Jesus was resurrected, they did not give up their lives. And I don't say that figuratively. I mean physically. They did not go to be martyred simply because they had an intellectual understanding of who Jesus said that he was. You understand that? No. They did. Okay? They had a good grasp on their theology, obviously. But they were able and willing to lose their heads, literally, to go to the cross, literally, because they experienced the realness of God. They had a real, tangible experience with God. And I'll be honest with you guys, at some point in your life, stuff is going to hit the fan, and in that moment, you will not go back to what you learned on a Wednesday night. You will go back to how real God has been in your life, and when he has physically 
grabbed your heart, that will be what you'll go back to. Now, we need as Christians, we need robust understanding of the gospel. But I'm telling you, God's desire for you is not only that you would know him, but not only that you would know about him, but that you would know him. Okay, that's, that's a huge piece of how we grow. The disciples gave up their lives ultimately because they experienced Jesus himself. That's why the Apostle John said in his letter, he said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at in our hands, have touched this, we proclaim concerning the word of life. What they were giving was the fact that they truly, tangibly experienced Jesus. He was real to them. They had a personal relationship with him. They knew him. That was how they could do the things that they did. They experienced the reality of Jesus. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, a man can't be always defending the truth. There must be a time to feed on it. There must be a time to feed on it. In my own personal life, I've spent so much time trying to get more intellectual understanding of who God is that I'm realizing that I'm not getting to know God at all. I'm just getting knowledge. God says, to know me, you must be with me. To know me, you need to be in my presence. You need to spend time with me. So that's the first reason I'm offering for you guys to saturate yourself in the Psalms because the Psalms will remind you of that truth. They will remind you of what it looks like to have an honest and raw, tangible relationship with the God of the universe. Not where you just come to Bible studies and hear truths, but where you interact with him where you pour your heart out to him, where you're heard by him. You know him and you're known by him. The second reason to saturate your life with the Psalms is because the Psalms encourage honest, put this up, the Psalms encourage honest worship. Honest worship. What I love about the Psalms is that they're, they're raw, they're honest, they're theological, but they're also emotional. What I love about the Psalms is that, is that in this, these moments, you think, is that really worship when someone is praying something that almost seems wrong? Someone's praying that God would smite their enemies. Someone's praying this or someone's praying that, and it almost seems like, okay, I just don't know whether that's the right thing to say in the moment. God says, I need your honesty in order to have your worship. In order for you to truly give me worship, you have to be honest with me. And that means sometimes giving God whatever is in your heart in that moment, no matter how wretched it is. God, this is how I'm feeling. He can handle it. In fact, he already knows. Okay, but true and authentic worship begins with honesty with God, honesty with the living God, where you Lord says, Lord, this is really where I'm at right now. This is how I'm feeling. Whether it be right, whether it be wrong, I need you to correct me, but this is how I am. This is how I'm feeling. God, take that and turn it into worship. I love that the Psalms are honest. The Psalms would not make it through the publishers of a Crossway uh, publication. They're too rugged. They're too raw. They're too uncut. But man, am I glad that they're there because what that tells me is that I can be raw with God. I can be honest with God. I can tell God how I'm feeling. I can yell at God and he will correct me and he will deal with me. He wants our honesty, guys. The Psalms are an open window into the soul of man wrestling with God praising God through the hardest of times and attempting to obey God in the midst of a fallen and a broken world. The third reason to saturate your life with Psalms is that the Psalms remind us of the importance of simple faith. 
Now, I, one thing I was really wrestling with, and we do, we do like a focus group for each of these teachings um, earlier in the week. And so with the guys uh, that I was doing that with, I was, I was just talking about it. And I was thinking, you know, how does worship differ in the Old Testament? You ever thought about that? Okay, so we know what worship is like for us in the New Covenant. We have the Holy Spirit. We have uh, the closed canon of Scripture. We have, uh, you know, all this kind of structure that we have around what our worship looks like. But what did it look like in the Old Testament? Were they sort of just like a lesser than version? Like, did there, was their worship real, or was it just kind of a better version of Judaism? Like, what, what was it? And I wrestled with that this week. And you know what I realized reading through the Psalms? These guys worshiped God in ways that I have not yet experienced. And they were in the Old Covenant. They had the sacrificial system, I mean, the Mosaic Law. And here I am with the, the completed full scripture right here with, with all of this understanding, like Paul said, these mysteries that have been revealed about what God was going to do in his redemptive story. I stand uh, with all of these resources, with the Bible uh, and all kinds of commentaries right at my fingertips and the Holy Spirit living in me, ready to work. And yet I read these Psalms and I think I envy the worship that these men and women brought to God. I envy it. And you know what that led me to realize is, is that worship is not contingent on resources. Worship is, con- is contingent on authenticity and faith. In the book of Romans, Paul's talking to the Jews and he's talking to them about what it really truly means to be saved by faith and faith alone. And you know who he looks back to? To a man named Abraham. And here's what I love about Abraham. Abraham is is, is held up as sort of the example of a simple faith relationship with God, where you say, God, all I know is that you got me. All I know is that you're God, okay? What I love about Abraham is Abraham didn't have the Mosaic Covenant. Abraham didn't have the prophets. Abraham didn't have any of the things that we have. Abraham, wasn't, he didn't even know he was a Jew. He was the first one, right? He was just this Joe Schmo guy called out of this land of Ur. All he knew was that God was real. He didn't know all the details, he didn't know all of the, the soteriology, he didn't know the eschatology, he didn't know the theology, he didn't know any of that. All he knew, God is real, God has called me, God has promised this, and I believe him. What that tells me is, is that true and authentic faith comes in simplicity. Now, that's not demonizing theology. That's not demonizing all of the amazing things that we have. We are blessed to be in the era that we live in. We are blessed to. But don't think for a second because you come to church twice a week or because you have a nicely packaged uh, devotional next to your bed or because you have the Bible on your iPhone or because you live in the New Covenant or because you can pick up a systematic theology book and understand what Paul's talking about. Don't think for a minute that that can cause true and authentic worship. Authentic worship is a simple act of saying, God, I trust that you are who you say you are. That's why a child can do it. That's why my three-year-old can have an authentic faith in God because she doesn't know all the answers, but all she needs to know is that God is her daddy and that God is real and that God loves her. A simple faith, a simple faith. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. When I got saved, I did not know anything, but I knew God was real and I knew that he was true. And I'm so thankful that he's grown me up in maturity as a Christian but I'll never forget the simple faith that God pulled me into. So how? Okay. How do you saturate yourself in the Psalms? And we'll close on this. I just want to give you guys three tools. Three tools, three ways to saturate your life 
with the Psalms. Hopefully I've made a case for you to wanna get into these this week, to dig into these, to dive into these. But how do we do it? How do we read them, okay? Three quick, quick things. The first way that I would encourage you guys this week and the weeks to come uh, to saturate your life in the Psalms, the first way is this. Pray through the Psalms, okay? Pray through the Psalms. And what, what I mean by that is simply this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you guys remember him, he was a theologian uh, from the time of, of World War II, actually lived in Nazi internment camps, uh, amazing theologian, um, wrote this. He said, the Psalms is the prayer book of Jesus in the truest sense of the word. He prayed the Psalms. And now it has become the prayer I'm sorry, now it has become his prayer for all time. Those who pray the Psalms are joining in with the prayer of Jesus. Jesus himself saw the Psalms as not something just to be understood or studied or or aware of. He saw them as something to be prayed. Okay, perfect example of that. When he's on the cross and he cries out in agony, God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the Psalms. Psalm 22, Jesus knew the Psalms. He probably had much of them memorized. And when he goes and reaches into the the depths of his soul to pull something out to say to the Lord about how he's feeling in that moment, and that's what he's feeling because the wrath of God is being pressed upon him because you and I are being saved. In that moment, what comes out of his mouth, what comes out of his heart is the Psalms. He was saturated in them. And then when he was wrung out, what came out? The Psalms. The Psalms came out. It's what Jesus did. So why should we pray through the Psalms? Well, because Jesus did. Okay. Why else should we pray through the Psalms? Because, secondly, we need a guide to pray rightly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer went off. He wrote a book about the Psalms, by the way. He, he, he also went on to say this. He said, if we are to pray aright, perhaps it is quite necessary that we pray contrary to our own heart. <laughs> Not what we want to pray is important, but what God wants us to pray. Okay. In other words... If you sit down just you and start praying, uh, again, encourage you to be honest, right? And God can correct you. But odds are what comes out of the flesh is deceiving and wicked above all things. What comes out of my heart is probably going to be wrong. The cool thing about the Psalms is they can actually guide you into God, God, uh, God's heart in prayer. The Psalms can read you, lead you into God's heart and God's uh, will in your prayer life. It's an alignment, and that's what prayer is supposed to be, right? Prayer is an alignment to God's will. So what that looks like tangibly, okay? So you you pick up the Psalms, you read a Psalm, and you say, okay, what is this teaching me about God? How can I pray this into my own life? How can I pray what the psalmist is asking for into my own life? Uh, what, what is this bringing up about my fallen condition as a human being? What, can I, what is this bringing up that I need to repent of? What is this bringing up about God that I want to praise him for? And allow the Psalms to guide you and lead you into a deeper and deeper uh, time of prayer. I don't know about you guys, but I need that. Because when I pray, I'm instantly two minutes adding things to my calendar that I forgot to do. Okay? So perhaps the Psalms could be sort of a guide for us this week to really press into prayer in a deeper way. The second way I would encourage you guys to saturate your life with the Psalms is to worship through the Psalms. To worship through the Psalms. Paul, in the New Testament, he refers to the church as literally, guys, the poem. The poem of God, or the artwork of God, or the workmanship of God, depending on how you translate it. But literally, uh, Paul is saying that you, Christians, are the poem of God. 
that your life is like a song that God is constructing. Your life is like a poem that God is writing in a way that is pleasing to himself. N.T. Wright, who also wrote a book on the Psalms, he said this. He said, God gives us these poems. Okay, uh, Again, the word there is poema that uh, Paul uses. God gives us these poems, the Psalms, as a gift in order that through our praying and singing of them, he may give us as a gift to his world. We are called to be living, breathing, praying, singing poems. Okay? So what, I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to take you in that is, is that literally, when you take these psalms and you say, okay, here is worship in these psalms. Now, I want to become worship myself. Your life becomes a psalm. Your life becomes a poem to God And our, I, my hope is, is that you, as you look at these psalms and as you see the, the level of authentic worship that these Old Testament saints entered into, that it would spark something in you that wants to make your life into a psalm to God. Let the poems of these past saints' love for God inspire you to become your own poem. And let me say this. Something happens when you take a worship song or a poem and you make it your own. I had a breakthrough in this a few weeks ago. I was in here on a Wednesday night, and Aaron, I think, was leading worship, and, and I was just worshiping God, and, and, and it hit me, and this is like, I should, this is, I should know this. I'm a worship leader. It hit me that I need to make these words my own. Yes, I'm singing them. Yes, they're on the, the screen, and, and yes, we're all singing it together, but there's a difference between I'm singing it and I mean it. It took a tangible action, uh, an intentionality, where I said, okay, God, I mean that. I mean what I'm singing. I mean what I'm singing. Lord, you really are great. Lord, you really are worthy. Lord, you really are worthy of all praise. I exalt thee, Lord. I exalt thee, Lord. Not just because he's singing it and I'm singing along, but no, I exalt thee. It was this moment where instantly I felt the Spirit and I instantly felt that I was in worship, a time of worship to God because I made the songs my own. And I want to encourage you guys to do the same with the Psalms in the Old Testament. To say, God, I want to express that same thing, that same truth, that same reality about you. I want to make it my own. And then lastly is I would encourage you guys to meditate through the Psalms. There's this one cool little word that you'll see come up. In fact, it came up in one of the Psalms that we read together. And that word is Selah. Just let the rain hit the roof when you say that. the peace of just, shh. <laughs> I'm really bad at that. As you can tell, I can't even stop talking right now. It's, it's that peace of just saying, wow, that was really, that was really good. I, I think I need to sit in that for a minute. I think I need to let the reality of what just was said in that, that, that verse sink. That's what Selah is. It's telling the reader to pause and grapple with that. I don't know about you guys, but my life is one thing to one thing, one thing, one thing. I go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. I'm driving my car. I have a podcast on, and then I get to work, and I'm busy, and I'm busy, and then I have a lunch meeting, and then I'm moving on, and then I listen to some music, and then I'm, I'm constantly going. I never have a moment to stop and take a breath. And I think that that's killing us as Christians. I would encourage you guys, as well as myself, what if tomorrow morning you woke up and read one psalm and you sat in silence for 10 minutes? Turn your phone off. I think it'd be really hard. 
I'm going to try it tomorrow. See how it goes, okay? Ten minutes, silence, reflecting, meditating, allowing the truth of what God just said to hit you, to impact your heart in a specific way. Again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, okay, now get this. This guy lived in an internment camp. This guy lived literally in a place where Jews were being murdered by the thousands, okay? And he said this about the Psalms. He said, for years, I've read the Psalms daily. There is no other book I know and love so well as this one. Knowing them in this way belongs to the greatest enrichments of life. The Psalms preserved Bonhoeffer. The Psalms led Christ through his ministry. They were on the tip of his mind, constantly saturated in the truths that were sung through and spoken through and prayed through these saints of old. And I want to encourage you guys to treasure these. Treasure them. Read them. Pray through them. Meditate on them. Understand them. Study them. Love them and cherish them. And I pray that as we're saturated in those, when we get wrung out, they would come out. Psalms, praise, worship would come out. Amen? Let's all stand and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the book of Psalms. God, we thank you that you are a God that wants to meet with us and that you are a God that wants to be known not only through the intellect but also God that you allow us to know you on a personal level that we experientially get to know you to be in your presence Lord I just pray God that in this week to come that we would slow down and that we would saturate ourselves, our minds in these psalms and in the scriptures, and that in doing so, we would be reminded of the peace that comes through the gospel. When we remember that it's not about us, that it's all about you, and that everything has been accomplished in your son, Jesus Christ, that we can rest right now. As the rain falls on the roof, we can let go of all of our anxieties, we can rest in the finished work of the cross. Thank you for letting us worship you. And God, we just pray that we would grow as worshipers. Lord, we love you, and thank you so much for this church, Lord, and all that you're doing here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, guys. All right. Have a good evening. We'll see you guys Sunday.